a doubt, the most popular and the most anticipated sermon series that I do in any given year is the series that we're going to be in this week and next, and it's called City Church at the Movies. On the one hand, it's really nice that people like this series so much. On the other hand, what it means is that the other 50 weeks of the year aren't anybody's favorite, and so I kind of feel conflicted uh, about that, I have to be honest. It's fascinating, though, to watch how people who are new to City Church uh, process this sermon series. At first, uh, many people tell me that it scares them to death, especially if they came from a church background that demonized uh, movies. I don't know if they're afraid that we're going to get struck by lightning uh, or if they're afraid that we are liberal in some way, shape, or form that they hadn't caught already, but fear seems to be the first emotion that many people have of this series. But then for most people, fear gives way to enjoyment and anticipation once they begin to understand what we're trying to accomplish. You know, one of the core values of City Church is engagement with our culture. We don't believe at City Church that there's anything Christian about being isolated from the culture. And movies are often valuable as a window of insight into the heart of the postmodern culture in which we live. It's, a, it's in a culture stories that we have access to what's in their hearts and what's in their imagination. Get insight into their hopes and their fears and their values and their dreams. And so movies, if we learn how to analyze them, they can provide us a point of contact to begin discussions with people who aren't Christians about things that really matter. Now, not every movie is worthy of deep reflection, of course, but some are. And the two that we're going to address this year certainly are. This year, we're going to be looking at the movie Green Book, which won an Academy Award a few weeks ago for Best Picture. And next week, we're going to look at Bohemian Rhapsody, which was nominated for Best Picture. And both of those were based on true stories. Today, we're going to start with Green Book. And out of curiosity, how many of you have seen the movie Green Book? Okay, good. Quite a few of you. That's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, the movie's based on a true story. And its title refers to a book called the Negro Motorist Green Book that was published annually from 1936 to 1966. And it was published, it was a guide for travelers, for black travelers through segregated America, pointing them to where they could stay and eat and get uh, other services. In fact, here's how the book described itself. The Negro Motorist Green Book gives the Negro traveler information that will keep him from running into difficulties and embarrassments and make his trip more enjoyable, which, of course, is a euphemistic way of saying, here's how to avoid trouble in the South, because you're black. The movie is set in 1962. Dr. Don Shirley, who is played brilliantly by Mahershala Ali, is one of the world's most accompanied pianists at the time. Dr. Shirley gave his first public concert at age three. He played with the Boston Pops at 18 years old. He earned three doctorates in music, psychology, and uh, excuse me, three doctorates in music, psychology, and the, lit- and the liturgical arts. He knew eight languages. He was very sophisticated, elegant, carried himself as an aristocrat who placed great stock in propriety and decorum. He's also black. Living in a penthouse above Carnegie Hall in New York City, and about to embark on a concert tour through the South. And while he has fans in the South, plenty of them, in fact, they'll pay to hear him play and even stand and cheer for him, but they won't let him sleep in their beds or eat at their tables 
or even use their restrooms. So Shirley's Record Company hires an Italian-American bouncer from the famous Copacabana nightclub. His name is Tony Vallelonga. He's also known as Tony the Lip. He's played brilliantly by the actor uh, Viggo Mortensen. And he is hired to drive Shirley from New York to his concert dates in the South, providing muscle for Dr. Shirley if it's necessary. And as you can imagine, it does become necessary. Tony is a D's and D's kind of guy. He's a big lug. He's not averse to a little rough stuff. He has a short fuse. He has an enormous appetite. Has a nice wife and a couple of young boys. And oh yeah, early in the movie, before he meets Dr. Shirley, a couple of black plumbers drink from glasses in his home, which Tony promptly throws away afterwards. The story describes the impact that these two men have on one another in the friendship, the friendship that developed between them throughout a long road trip and tour through the South, and a friendship that actually lasted until they died four months apart in 2013. Uh, here's the trailer for, for the movie. Yeah. Some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and the Deep South? There's going to be problems. Promise me you're going to write me a letter. No problems. Tell me that don't smell good. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. Interacting with some of the wealthiest people in the country. It is my feeling that your addiction Oof. could use some finessing. Dear Dolores. I saw Dr. Shirley play the piano. He's like a genius, I think. Come on, take it easy. I prefer not to get grease on my blanket. Ooh, I'm gonna get grease on my blanket. This gentleman says that I'm not permitted to dine here. I'm afraid not. How does he smile and shake their hands like that? Because it takes courage to change people's hearts. What are you doing? A letter. May I? Dear Dolores, sometimes you remind me of a house. You know this is pathetic, right? Put this down. The distance between us is breaking my spirit. Falling in love with you was the easiest thing I have ever done. P.S. Kiss the kids. That's like clinging a cowbell at the end of Shostakovich's seven. And that's good. It's perfect, Tony. And I'm gonna... <laughs> Yeah. You never win with violence. You only win when you maintain your dignity. You don't know your own people. You, Mr. Big Shot, doing concerts for rich people. So if I'm not black enough, and if I'm not white enough, then tell me, Tony, what am I? Anyone can sound like Beethoven. For your music, what you do, only you can do that. What do we do about the bones? We do this. <laughs> Pick it up, Tony. Squirrels would eat it anyway. Pick it up. 
There's so many good things that we can walk away from this movie with, but I only have time this morning to make three observations on the message of the movie that give us really, I think, some insight into the longings of people in our culture, as well as the places that we see biblical truth being validated uh, by the character's experience in this movie. Here's the first observation, and I'm going to just tell you in advance, I'm going to spend a little more time on this observation than the other two, because I think this one is really very important in our culture, and it's very important for us as evangelicals. And here's the observation, that this movie about blacks and whites reminds us that very few things in life are black and white. There's the scene in the movie in which Dr. Shirley was caught in a YMCA having sex with another man, a white man, in fact. Tony convinces the police not to put Dr. Shirley in jail. The next night, Dr. Shirley apologizes to Tony. And if the racial differences between these two men hasn't completely divided them, without question, we anticipate in the moment that this is going to be the thing that destroys their relationship. But as As Dr. Shirley apologized, immediately after, Tony says to Dr. Shirley, and I thought this was such an important moment that I stopped the movie, went back so that I could quote him exactly. He said, don't worry about it. I've been working in nightclubs in New York City my whole life. I know it's a complicated world. I don't think most people would think that a nightclub bouncer and a pastor would have much in common, but I will tell you that, that like Tony the Lip, working as a pastor and being invited into some of the darkest places in people's lives, I've learned over the last 30 years that not only is life complicated, but people are complicated too. I think if we understood this, that life is complicated and that people are complicated and that not everything is black and white, in fact, very few things are black and white. I think if we understood this, that the The deeply polarizing, reductionistic tenor of our personal and national disagreements would give way to things like nuance and understanding and compassion and the ability to disagree without being enemies. I don't know if you feel this or not, but as I watch arguments play out on social media, I feel like I'm back in junior high, and that might be an offense to junior hires. Because so much of what happens on social media is either outrage or wholehearted endorsement. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either my friend who agrees with me on everything or you are my enemy. You are either good or evil, a hater or a lover, a racist or not a racist. But life and people are more complicated than that. I don't know a single person whom I could categorize as simply good or evil. Everyone I know is good and evil. I don't know anyone who I could say is a racist or is not a racist. All of the people I know are racist about some things and not racist about other things, including me. I don't want to be racist about anything. And hopefully over time, as a result of the work that Jesus Christ is doing in me, I am becoming less and less so. But like every other person I know, I'm complicated. I'm human. And if I'm not self-aware enough to realize that I am not black and white and that the issues that we deal with in our culture can't be reduced down to simply black and white, I will only choose to live in an echo chamber where everyone agrees with me, which is profoundly dangerous because a self-righteous contempt will develop in me toward people who disagree with me. And contempt by its very nature means that I can do and say anything I want to people who disagree with me because they're underneath me. They're beneath me. They're not as good as me, you see. 
And by the way, do you know what makes it possible to be so reductionistic about life and people? It's the individualism and the isolation of our culture. Social media provides me both anonymity to say whatever I want, but it also prevents me from having relationships with people who might disagree with me on something. See, I think the evangelical community could benefit tremendously if we grasped this reality that life isn't so black and white. And our, I think our witness to the world would improve dramatically. Now, before I explain why I say that, let me just state from the outset what I think that if you've been here for much time at all would be obvious. I believe in absolute truth. And I believe that the Bible says that there are things that are right and wrong. Morality is one of the things in this world that is black and white. So what I'm about to say neither reflects a softening of my position on any moral issue, nor am I endorsing moral relativism. But at the same time, after 30 years of working closely with people, I can tell you that the choice that people make to do right and the choice to do wrong is complicated by a whole host of factors. For instance, motive. Some, not all, but some of the people who are the rightest, quote, the rightest people I know are also some of the meanest, most judgmental, prideful people that I know with whom I have no desire to spend any time. I think it was Mark Twain who described people like that as they are so good that they are bad. Their rightness becomes a way of exalting themselves and bludgeoning other people. And it's not just motive. In addition to motive, uh, the things that go into a person making a decision about doing good or doing wrong, things like a person's background, their, their upbringing, shame, guilt, the ideas that a person has absorbed from their family or their culture often bind their will so that they almost can't make the right choice. For instance, the reasons that a woman might choose to have an abortion are more complex than merely waking up in the morning and deciding as an act of the will in the moment to bring an end to her baby's life. Now, that doesn't excuse whatever the factors are that affected her decision. That does not excuse her. It does not make abortion right. It is still wrong, of course. Please, please hear me saying that. And do not walk out of here and send me or Dustin an email saying that I am saying that abortion is right. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that when I understand the complexity beyond, behind the decisions that people make, it allows me to feel compassion for her as a person. And as a result, I'm not going to show up at Planned Parenthood. And I'm not going to show up in an abortion clinic with a placard on which a picture of an aborted fetus is there or words that say baby killer. Nor am I going to put up billboards that say abortion is murder or put tombstones in a field along the interstate reminding people that abortion has killed someone. I'm not going to do that. I will find other more constructive, gracious ways of addressing the complexities behind her decision rather than just dealing with her as if it's merely a matter of her will. That's just one example. Evangelicals often are as wrong as social media in this. We often respond to people and issues with knee-jerk reactions rather than thoughtful nuance. 
And it damages our reputation, and it damages the name of Christ in our culture when we do it. Nuance doesn't reduce everything and everyone down to black and white. Nuance allows me to say, for instance, I wish there were not so much language and gratuitous sex in movies and television, but it allows me to say that without rejecting outright the creativity and the artistry and even the value of movies and television. That's what nuance does. Nuance allows me to say, I believe greed is wrong, and yet it also allows me to have friends and to care deeply for people who are greedy. Nuance allows me to have a political position without demonizing people who hold different political positions. And isn't this the way that Jesus dealt with people? One of the most beautiful examples of this that I, that I think of is found in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's home for dinner. Uh, this guy's name was Simon, and, and a prostitute shows up at the dinner. She wasn't invited, but she shows up. and She, she sees Jesus, and she is overwhelmed, and she begins to, she bows at his feet, and she wets his feet with her tears, and she pours perfume on him at the same time. And the Pharisee, the religious guy who sees everything in black and white terms, is, is stunned by the fact that Jesus allows this woman to do this. And Jesus says to this Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, he says, he says do you see this woman? By the way, what a question. Do you see this woman? This human, this person, do you see this person? Or is all you see black and white? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet. These are all customary things that people would do. They give them water for their feet and other things that you'll hear in this passage. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. And of course, the implication is yours haven't. This is a nuanced response to these people that comes from Jesus' perfect understanding that people and life are complex. Jesus didn't look at people in just black and white terms. The goodness of this Pharisee which you would think, oh, you know, Jesus would, he'd love someone who's good. Well, and he does love everyone. But this goodness of the Pharisee, Jesus saw that it masked the evil in his heart. And of course, and then without excusing this woman's sins, notice he calls them sins in this passage. No excuse. But without excusing her sins, he sees this prostitute's actions as love and he offers her forgiveness. You see, that's, that's a nuanced response. This is what grace and understanding that life is complex and that everything isn't black and white. It's what it allows us to do. It's how it allows us to respond to people and to issues and to have nuanced perspectives and thoughts and, and responses to people and to the issues in our culture. We need this as a culture, and we need this as a church. And the church at large in America needs more of an understanding that not everything in life is so black and white. Morality is, yes, but people are complicated. And the reasons that they make 
Good choices and bad choices are complicated by many, many factors. It's not just a matter of the will in the moment. Here's the second thing that I see in this movie. We long for unity as people, but our instincts divide us. Like we long for unity as people, but our instincts divide us. I mentioned just a moment ago that early in the movie, before he meets Dr. Shirley, a couple of black uh, plumbers are in Tony's home. They're repairing his sink, and his wife offers each of them a glass of lemonade. And Tony sees this, and after the men leave the room, he promptly throws the glasses away. On the other hand, Dr. Shirley is put off by Tony and his lack of refinement. So you've got these two men who both have something that's dividing each of them. But if you watch the movie and if you monitor what you're feeling while you watch the movie, you'll notice that there is this longing inside of you. Hope that what will happen in the end of this movie is that these two men will come to a sense of appreciation for one another, differences included. And that a friendship will develop in these two very different men. That's what you hope. That's what you're longing for inside. And indeed, that is what happens. We long for unity, but our instincts divide us. And what I mean by that is that the Bible teaches that human pride is at the root of racism. Racism is because of the exists because of the inveterate self-centeredness of the human heart. I don't know if any of you remember this. Uh, a few years ago, there were these advertisements. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head the company that did them. But the commercial had three babies, and one was black, one white, and one Asian. And they're all playing together. And over the top uh, of the babies, it said, uh, no one is born a racist. Anybody remember those uh, commercials? Anybody see those advertisements? When you first see the ad, there's a kind of emotional logic there. That, and, you, and you say, well, of course, uh, little children of different races, they get along just fine. No one's born a racist. The implication, of course, then, is that you're taught to be a racist. But let's play that out for just a moment. Who teaches a child to be a racist? Well, you would say a parent or someone else who was also taught to be a racist. Okay, who taught them? You'd say, well, someone else who was taught to be a racist. Well, who taught that person? You'd say, someone else who was taught to be a racist. Okay, who taught then the very first racist in the world? Like, did a Martian show up thousands of years ago and say, I know how we can wreck human history. I'll teach one of them to be a racist, and then it will start, and it will flow down through history. Well, of course, that's not what happened. The reason for racism, like any other sin, is the inveterate pride of the human heart. The Bible says, of course you're born a racist. It's just babies can't recognize the differences, that's all. But they're all born, they're already born selfish and prideful. And if you have a child, you know that. As soon as a child is old enough to lie uh, verbally, that child will lie to your face without blinking and without anyone ever having taught the child to do it. As soon as a child is able to hit another child who steals his toy away from him, he's going to do it without ever having seen anyone else do it. The reason is that they're born self-centered and prideful and selfish and deceitful. Without blinking, without having to be taught it, if a child sees that they're superior in any way, smarter, faster, whatever, they'll rub other people's faces in it. They just do it. There's this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 in which the Apostle Paul is talking about the primary racial division in the first century between two ethnic groups, Jews and, and Gentiles. 
Jewish people saw themselves as superior to the Gentile people. Why? Why did they see themselves as superior? Well, watch what Paul says. He's speaking to Gentiles. And he says, remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Underline that if you have a Bible with you. Without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ... Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. Now, what is this barrier that he's talking about? What's this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles? Well, he says in in verse 12, it was the covenants of promise. What he's talking about is the law of Moses. Because when God formed the nation of Israel, he gave the Jewish people the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, as an expression of himself. And the Gentile nations were not given this law. Well, guess what? The law, which was a gift from God, became a source of division. Why? Because of pride. This is what broken humanity does. We take our gifts, and because of sin in the heart, our gifts turn into a source of pride. We use them to convince ourselves, that we're better, more special than other people. Because of our pride, our instinct is to divide ourselves from other people, even though there's a real longing in our hearts to be unified with other people. It's pride. That's the cause of racism. That's our instinct, to divide. And yet, there is this enormous longing for unity within the human soul that frankly can only be understood as being created in the image of God. God who is a loving and unified God, each member of the Trinity relating to one another in love and in unity, has put that in us, this longing for unity. But because of sin, our instincts divide us. Well, here's my last observation And uh, as I said, you know, there's many other good things we could take. I just don't have time to go into all of them. Let me just end with this one. If your identity is placed in anything but Christ, you will never know who you are, and racism will never end. There's a scene in the movie, in fact, it was in the trailer a moment ago, in which we realize that, that Dr. Shirley, for all of his success and for all of his refinement, He's a lonely outsider. He says in tears that he's not black enough and and he's not white enough. And then he adds, and I don't know if you caught this, but he adds with a bewildered sense of anguish, he adds this. He says, what, what am I? He says, I'm not black enough. I'm not white enough. What am I? And that horrific what, instead of who, is in effect the crux of the film, and frankly, it's where the movie makes a wrong turn. It's where we see the, this, the difference between biblical Christianity and mere humanity. Because the, the rhetorical question of what am I rather than who am I suggests that the right answer is that you're a person. 
a trait-free person living in a kind of colorblind neutrality in bland common ground of an accepted mainstream of cuisine and entertainment and friends and family and so on, and that this is what the end of racism would look like. But Christianity argues for something very, very different. Christianity argues for a world free of racism, but one where people are also free to celebrate their unique ethnicity. Uh, But Christianity argues that that can only happen through the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's why. That passage I read to you just a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, he said at the end of the passage, I'm going to read this to you again. He says, he says, for he himself, he's talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two, Jews and Gentiles, two different races, one. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, that was the law, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations, because Jesus fulfilled it. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, why is the cross the only way to end racism? Well, one reason is that the cross completely changes the way that you look at yourself. You cannot come to the cross of Jesus Christ without being humbled. You see, the the cross of Christ forces you to acknowledge that you're a broken sinner, and in fact, so broken, so sinful, that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die to deliver you. In fact, that's the very reason that so many people are offended by the cross. It is so humbling. It's hard to see yourself as better than anyone else when you're confronted with the level of your brokenness, the theological word for which is your depravity, which doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be at all possible points, but it does mean this, that you're not as good as you should be at any possible point. And that's humbling. It changes the cross, changes the way that you look at yourself. But not only does it change the way you look at yourself, it changes the way you look at other people. You see someone who is a different race than you, you realize that the most important thing about that person is that Jesus Christ loved them so deeply, found them to be so profoundly valuable that he gave his life up for them. And so whatever their race is, you realize that first, they are a person deeply loved by Jesus himself, and then second, they are white or black or Asian or whatever. Changes the way you look at yourself. It changes the way you look at other people. But it also gives you freedom to celebrate your ethnicity. Outside of the cross, human pride causes people to judge one another on the basis of any advantage you can find. We've talked about that. As a result, you can't help but make your race your identity, either by pridefully exalting in your race or hating your race because it's looked down upon by others. But if you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you come to a place in which you realize that the most important thing about yourself is not your skin color or your class or your background. But the most important thing about you, the thing that defines your identity, is that the God of the universe loved you so much that he gave his life up for you in the person of Jesus, which makes you not a what, but a who. A person deeply loved by the most important person in the universe, the subject of life itself and the object of life itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And once you understand that, you're free now to enjoy your race and all of its distinctions without having to either exalt pridefully in it or despise it because it isn't the most important thing about you anymore. Please understand, I'm not suggesting that education about racism isn't important. Don't get me wrong, but you cannot educate racism out of people. You have to deal with racism at its root, at the level of human sin. And the only place that can do that in the entire universe is the cross of Jesus Christ. He is our peace. If your identity is placed in anything but Christ, you will never know who You are, and racism will never end. And let me just close with that. Where's your identity this morning? Is it in what you do? Is it in your skin color? Is it in how much money you have? Is it in your class? In the school that you went to? What's it in? Where's your identity? If it's not in the cross of Jesus, you will never know who you are. And I will also tell you that if it's not in the cross of Jesus, racism will never end. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Would you just consider that question this morning? Where is my identity? What's the most important thing about me? What do I look to to gain advantage over other people? What is it that I think makes me better than other people? This morning, if you will come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you'll see that you are broken, so broken, in fact, that God and the person of Jesus had to die on the cross for you. That's broken, and that's humbling. But when you come there, you also understand that the most important thing about you is it's not anything not anything else in the world other than the cross because not only were you so broken but you're so deeply loved that's better news than you could possibly imagine and that that never changes that love that Christ has for you never ever changes Lord Jesus Christ you know, your word says that the local church is to be the place that demonstrates to the rest of the world what unity looks like. Or would you make us people who are unified and that we would look at, at life as more complicated than just merely black and white, that people aren't either good, bad, for, against. It's just not black and white. That it's, We're all a mixed combination of good and bad and It's okay to have people who disagree with you on things and to have relationships with people who are different than you. Lord, would you make this longing for unity real in our presence as we find our identity in what you did for us on the cross and not in anything else about us, including our skin color. And we marvel at the wisdom of the cross. We marvel at the power of the cross. And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what you have done for us there. And it's in your name that we pray today.